This is episode 52 of the Prepper Website Podcast. Today's articles are Raising Baby Chicks, Beginner's Guide for the First Six Weeks, How to Make a Free DIY Weed Killer from Someone's Bad Habit, and The Urgency of Doing, Knowing is Not Enough. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily aggregator of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, I think I've got a good show for you today, or at least good articles to read. Uh, the Baby Chicks, you know, when I was preparing for the, the podcast and reading that, I was thinking about an article that I wrote in Chickens that, I, that, that I've had. So I'm going to be able to share a little bit of information with you. It kind of all ties in together with that last article is, you know, uh, knowing and doing is not enough. And then this uh, DIY, this free DIY weed killer, it's not just the uh, you know the, the regular old salt and vinegar and Dawn soap type thing that you're used to used to using. This is a powerful one. And before I read this uh, article, I had known about it. To be honest with you, I think it's so good. I'm going to include it in my garden gardening link bomb. I'll talk about that maybe just in a little bit. But uh, a lot of good stuff today. Hey, if you get a chance, come by the website, shoot me, uh, give me a, you know, drop a, a message in the comment section, or hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I'm on those social media contacts. I love to hear from people. And then, if you wouldn't mind sharing out the the podcast, is always great. I always appreciate that. Kind of saying that right up front before we get going, and then also. Don't forget that you can join the email list, and there's uh, benefits to that. And then hopefully those of you that uh, that joined and that are listeners, uh, hopefully you enjoyed that little sneak peek that I sent you uh, uh, this morning. And then uh, if you would like to join the Facebook group, uh, feel free to come by the, the website, theprepperwebsitepodcast.com, and click on our link to go to our free Facebook group and uh, you know ask to join, and we'll... We'll uh, approve you to come on in and, and be part of our small group, but uh, we're growing, so I'm excited about that. So let's get going on this one. Our first article comes to us from uh, Melissa K. Norris, and uh, this is actually a podcast, so this is the show notes to her podcast. So if you are in um, into doing chickens, or you are, and, and I believe, I truly believe everybody that that owns a backyard should have chickens. I just I I really do believe that. Um, and after doing it myself and seeing how easy it was, uh, I do believe everyone should do it. But anyway, uh, so if you're interested in doing that, I know a lot of people are. There, this is a podcast you're going to want to listen to. She, you know, it's a it's a good deal, uh, good podcast to listen to. And she's going to go into the basics here of raising baby chicks. Uh, for the first six weeks. So what I'm going to be reading, or the, basically it's the show notes, but it's it's almost a whole article. She does the same thing that um, Survivalist Prepper, uh, Dale over there, does with Survivalist Prepper. So uh, her show notes are basically an article. So let's get going on this one. Melissa K. Norris, uh, Raising Baby Chicks, Beginner's Guide for the First Six Weeks. Uh, raising baby chicks is a rite of passage for any homesteader or self-sufficiency folks. But when you're a beginner raising baby chicks... You want to make sure you're caring for your animals correctly. After all, this is your egg and meat production. These tips on raising baby chicks pertain to chicks purchased from a hatchery, feed store, or in the mail when they haven't been hatched out with a mama hen. 
It's much easier when we let nature do her thing, but many people don't have the luxury of an already established flock or broody hen and need to begin their flock with baby chicks. So again, like I said, you have the podcast that you can listen to, but then you also have the Facebook Live uh, Pioneering Today show that she's linking to, so you'll get to see the video if you want to see that as well. So uh, she lists a couple of things here to do for baby chicks. First one is uh, brooder boxes for chickens. Ideally, your brooder pen will have high enough sides to keep the baby chicks from jumping out. Curved or round shapes are best. Deep corners can lead to chicks getting trampled or trapped in the corner. Number two, best bedding for baby chicks. You need to have something in the bottom of your brooding box for the baby chicks bedding, preferably two inches deep. The best solution are pine pellets or wood shavings. Though cedar is not recommended, it can be stressful to their respiratory system. Hay and straw are prone to mold quickly and may harbor pests as well as requiring more frequent cleaning of your baby chicken's pen. Newspaper is slippery, especially when wet, and can cause a condition in baby chicks called splayed leg. Number three is the heat lamp. Your new darling baby chicks are all fuzzy little puff balls of cuteness. They haven't grown their feathers, and without their mother hen to keep them warm, they will require a heat lamp. A red bulb heat lamp not only keeps them warm, but also helps protect them from getting pecked and killed by their coop mates. It's important to make sure your heat lamp is stable and not near anything that could catch on fire. A guard is an excellent idea, especially when the chickens get bigger, also known as jump, fly, peck at. How long do chickens need to be under a heat lamp? So glad you asked. For the first two weeks, baby chicks should be kept at 95 degrees Fahrenheit. After that, you can raise the heat lamp by a few inches to lower the temperature by about 5 degrees for each week until the chicks have their full feathers. How long do you keep baby chickens under a light? Usually, chicks will be under the heat lamp for about 6 to 8 weeks. At 6 weeks, chicks are fully feathered, but if your outdoor temperatures are below 70 degrees Fahrenheit, slowly acclimate them. When can chickens live outside? Our chicks start living outside about two to three weeks of age, but still with the aid of the heat lamp. We'll turn off that heat lamp during the day if it's warm out, but turn it back on on chilly nights for a few weeks, until they're about eight weeks old, depending upon the weather. Water. When you first bring your baby chicks home, water is more important than food, especially if they're coming via the mail from a hatchery. First, place the baby chicks in their prepared heated brooder box and offer them water. It's best to use a watering container like this. I prefer metal ones as plastic tends to crack and leak. If it's an open container, baby chicks can fall in and drown. Once they've all taken a drink, you can tip their beaks into the water to help them know where it is. You can introduce their food. Water is more important when it comes to raising baby chicks, so usually wait an hour or so before introducing food to make sure they've drank water first. Always keep them with clean, fresh water. Food. When raising baby chicks, you need to start with the appropriate food for their optimal health and growth. What to feed baby chicks after hatching is important, especially the amount of protein. Laying hens or dual-purpose breeds require 16 to 18 grams of daily protein for the six weeks of life. Meat birds have a higher protein demand, needing to be fed 23 grams of protein a day for the first three weeks, with tapering to 20 grams from three to six weeks of age. We chose not to feed our chicks medicated feed. 
The purpose of us raising our own meat is to avoid antibiotics, hormones, pesticides, and chemicals in our food. We use an organic chick starter mix and also give them vegetable scraps from the garden and table. Grit. If you're raising baby chicks inside or they're not on the bare ground with access to dirt, you'll need to supplement with grit. The sooner the better. Grit helps them to digest their food as they don't have teeth. Put it in a small container in their pen and let them free range on it. Using the above six tips will help give your baby chicks their best start, but nothing can take the place of daily care and attention. Make sure you check the water, their water twice a day. Having clean and fresh water is very important. If the water in container springs a leak, you don't want your chicks standing in water or getting drenched. You'll want to make sure they're at the right temperature throughout the day. If they get too hot or cold, it can be critical. This is especially important during the first 24 hours of setting up your baby chicks. Signs your baby chicks are too hot. If they're panting in the, cor and in the corners of the brooder box away from the heat lamp, it's a sign the baby chicks are too hot and the heat lamp needs to be raised up a few inches. Signs your baby chicks are too cold. If they're all huddled together tightly under the heat lamp, they're too cold and you need to lower it an inch or two to warm them up. Keep their brooder box clean. You don't want them eating, lying, or breathing an excessive amount of poop. Chickens don't urinate separately. It all comes out in the poop, which makes excellent fertilizer, high in nitrates, when it's had a chance to cool. Great article and gives you the basics. So... Okay, so let me go ahead and go into my article and just my information that I that I know. So you know that uh, I've talked about it before. I used to be an assistant principal and worked in the school system. And our school district does the life cycle of a chicken in first grade. And so every year uh, we get, uh, at a certain time of the year, uh, we get you know little chicks, and uh, you know they they see the, the students see them hatch. They, they go from the incubator into a little box with a heat lamp and all the food. And so the kids get to see that, and they, you know they they get to see it all happen. And so it's really great. Um, usually the school finds someone to give them to, and in our area, you know, we're the suburbs, but. I've talked about this before. You can go down, you can come out of a neighborhood, you can be driving down the street, and then all of a sudden you could be in an area with open land and, you know, people are gardening or farming and, and things like that. So it's not very hard to find someone who will take chickens from, from a school. Uh, and so uh, every year I I'll, would always go down there when they, hey, Mr. Sepulveda, the, the chicks have hatched. And so I go down there and I, you know, just watch them for a little bit. And I dream about having chickens. And uh, I did have a chicken coop. I, I had a chicken coop that uh, someone gave me a while back and never really put it together. It was one of those, you know, backyard, uh, preppy, I don't know, uh, uh, whatever. Uh, you know, modern day for everyone who, you know, wants to do it out, you know, in, in their backyard. And so they gave it to me and finally got it put together and uh, brought the chickens home. Or brought the chicks home. And I brought five home. There was somebody else, a, a substitute teacher, who wanted two. So I let her have two, and I brought five home. And you're not sure which ones. I mean, they're very, I mean, they're baby chicks. You don't know how many roosters you're going to get, how many hens you're going to get. And so uh, I I had them, you, they come in a cage, right? And so they allow you to have this cage. So I was able to bring the cage home and kept them in there to the weekend, uh, you know, changing out the food and the water and have the heat lamp and, and all that kind of stuff until I was able to build uh, a bigger box. And so what I chose to do, I knew I was going to keep them in there because it was winter time. And uh, here here in Houston, I mean, we didn't have hardly any winter this year. It, it really sucks. I mean, the, the 
bugs are going to be really bad. Um, but there are times where it gets really, really cold, so you never know, right? And so I was going to keep them in the garage for a little bit, uh, you know, as they as they got older. Plus, the, my main reason for doing that was I didn't know which ones were roosters, and I and I'm in the suburbs, I'm in a neighborhood, uh, you know, I have a, a decent sized yard, but I can still you can still reach reach out and touch someone, and a rooster in the backyard is going to be known by a ton of people, right? It's going to wake up the whole neighborhood, so. I kind of wanted to keep them in the garage until I found out which ones were roosters. So as they're as they're growing up, you can kind of tell. And I was taking pictures. People on the Facebook group on the page were kind of helping me. It's like, yeah, that one looks like a rooster. That one. So it turns out two of them out of the five were going to be roosters or were roosters. And so before they started hooping and hollering, I put them on Craigslist. And uh, you know, like I said, the, the, you very quickly get into a rules uh, situation here in uh, you know where I'm at. Uh, outside of Houston, and so I uh, had people, you know, lined up to take the take the roosters from me. So I would meet. I met them later on, and dro- you know, dropped them off uh, here at the at the corner of our of our neighborhood. And so I was left with three, and I'm like, okay, I, I can deal with three. Three will be good. And so uh, one night, uh, the funny thing is one one uh, actually it was a morning. One morning I was going out there, and I think I was putting. Uh, the trash cans out or whatever and one of the one of the hens decided to become a rooster i guess overnight and uh man let out this big crow and it was so loud it just reverberated all over the house my wife was like <laughs> she was in the she was in the in the bedroom and she was like is that a rooster like yeah one of the chickens isn't a chicken or one of the hens isn't a hen it's a rooster and so, uh, luckily, there were so many people on that Craig's. You know, when I put the, put it on Craigslist, the people wanted it, uh, wanted the the roosters. That I just I just called the next person down. I'm like, hey, uh, it turns out I got another rooster. Do you want it? Yeah, sure enough, they met me that night. Because even I could just imagine, even in the garage, you know, crowing. I mean, it was gonna be it was gonna be loud. People were gonna hear it. So went ahead and got rid of that. So I was down to two. Um, and, uh, so finally got to the point where, uh, I was able to get them out there. And so even, even chicken, even hens, they're going to cluck. Sometimes they would cluck really, really loud. And so I know the neighbors knew I had the, the, the hens. They just never really said anything. But anyway, uh, so a couple of things, first of all, the water, when the water, when, uh, I guess the district has so many, um, cause we have like 53 elementary schools. Um, they send out. Uh, all this, you know, little dishes of, of water or whatever. It's not something like they would, uh, uh, you would have it at a feed store or whatever. And but what they do so that the chicks don't drown is they put marbles inside of this this uh, these little dishes, right? And so they're not very they're not very deep, uh, but they put marbles in them. So if the chick does get into it, they're not going to drown, but they can still get water out of it, all right? So I do have pictures of that because I was able to keep some of the materials until I was able to go to the feed store and get what I wanted and uh, have that there. So you see the pictures that I, that I did there. I built a brood, brooder box at least. Um, I guess it, you really wouldn't consider a brooder box. It's just a really big box. Uh, and uh, went ahead and the way I did it, I wanted to be able to break it down and put it back together if I needed it. So it's a big piece of plywood that I had it cut down. 
and I drilled holes in the corners of it and used ties to tie them. So I didn't even use like screws or anything. I didn't want to have any kind of screws where the chicks could, um, you know, jump up and, and hurt themselves. And then also didn't want to have to, uh, I wanted to be able to tear it down really, really easily and then put it back up again if I needed to. And so uh, you can see that I'm going to link to the article that I did. Uh, and I totally had forgotten about this article until I, I, I was getting ready to, to read this article, uh, Melissa's article. But anyway, so you can see what I did there. And I put down hay. I, re I you know, I know that Melissa said, you know, you don't want to do that. I put down hay. Uh, and, but what I did was as soon as I saw it, you know, it looked kind of maybe getting a little bit funky. I just put down a little bit more and it's funny how fast those chicks will, I mean, you can, you can drop down the hay, but they will very, very quickly start, you know, stepping on it and, you know, get it back down to a, to a manageable height. But by the time I was able to move them and so every time it got a little bit, uh, or at least I, I, I went into the garage and I could smell just a little bit. I would lay down another layer of hay. And so by the time when I moved them outside, all I did was scoop that up and uh, put that in, uh, in the compost bin and uh, you know let that, let that uh, cook down. But uh, so you get the pictures of that. I also have the, the feeder bucket uh, that I used and I have it on a... Um, I guess on a, on a board where I could roll up the because as they got as they got taller and bigger, uh, you don't want these chicks are going to poop everywhere. They're going to poop in their water. They're going to poop in their food. They're going to poop everywhere. And so you want to keep it as clean as possible. So this uh, the food bucket that I had, I would be able to raise it up as they got as they got taller. They would raise I would raise it up and and they would. Um, uh, they wouldn't uh, necessarily uh, get in there and poop. Now, sometimes they would jump on it, but they they wouldn't stay on it too long because it would start swinging, right? I know I'm kind of rambling and talking a lot, but I'm hopefully maybe helping a little bit here. Uh, and then I did have a little cover because it got to the point where they finally started jumping out. And that's, I mean, right after that, that's when I started moving them, moving them outside. Um, the second day that I had them outside, the biggest... I think it was a chicken hawk. I don't know exactly what it was. It was humongous. Came and landed right on my fence and just was were, was eyeing the chickens. And, of course, I, it stood there for a little bit or sat on the fence for a little bit. I guess it realized I'm not going to be able to get to the chickens. And then it took off. But, you know, when you're looking up into the sky, these birds don't look too big. But, I mean, it was humongous when it when it came and, and landed on the fence. And my father-in-law has lived in the area for a long time, and he's told me stories about uh you know little poodles getting you know getting taken up you know by uh by these hawks i i guess they're you know it wasn't um it wasn't like a vulture or anything like that i mean it it looked like a like a chicken hawk or a hawk so anyway that was kind of crazy um one of the <clears throat> one of the mistakes that i made i kind of wanted to bring this up when i was thinking about it is uh i did buy a heat lamp cuz i did have to take all the materials that i that i borrowed from the school i had to take them back uh, and, and take them back to our science resource center. So I went ahead and bought a heat lamp, but it was actually too powerful. And so uh, I had it, I didn't, you know, where Melissa talks about, you know, raising it, I had to raise it up really high right off the bat <clears throat> because it was just too powerful. In the picture uh, on the, um, on my, in my article, you'll see one of those regular looking um, 
I guess workbench light, lights that you get um, that you can use in the garage or whatever. And um, you know, finally, that's that's what I use from the uh, from the school or from the district. But uh, the heat lamp was just too powerful. And so that I'm in Houston, and uh, although you know it was still winter time, the garage wasn't that that cold. And so that's something to consider. So you really need to take all this kind of into account. It's funny because I was reading well, the, the last article that I'm going to read about doing this stuff. Somebody talked about in the comment section that it's, you know, it's going to be different for your local situation. I know that Melissa's up north and her, um, you know, her situation is, is definitely a lot different. You know, cold weather, snow, all that kind of stuff. And I'm down here in Houston, and our winters are, are not anywhere near what, you know, what y'all are experiencing up north. And so that's something to, to consider. One last thing. Having them in the garage, uh, no one ever told me about, I guess, chicken dander. And so uh, one day I went out there and all of a sudden I see this dust everywhere. And I'm like, what in the world is this? And I had a, a, one of the secretaries at school. She had a daughter who was uh, in FFA and she was kind of like my go-to on, on everything, chickens and rabbits and stuff. And she's like, oh, yeah, that's chicken dander. And, and, yeah, my husband won't allow us to have them in the garage anymore because of that because it got all over. I'm like, I wish you would have told me that because it it was bad. And it was one of those things where it didn't happen. I mean, it happened slowly, but you don't realize it until you realize it, if you know what I mean. And so one day you're going out there and no big deal. And the next day is like, what? There's this layer of, of dust everywhere and chicken dander. And so... It's something that you need to consider. I would try to move out. Um, I mean, I'm glad I didn't because I, I again, I think that you know they would have been eaten outside. But um, uh, it's something that you want to do. You want to move them out very, you know, quickly outside if you can. Because if you keep them in the in the garage or you keep them somewhere like that, you're going to have a mess on your hands that you're going to have to clean up because it goes everywhere. All right, so I know I talked a whole lot on that one. I'm going to link to uh, this article, my article on chickens as well, just so you really so you can kind of see the pictures and kind of see where where I'm at with all of that and see kind of what I did. Uh, but definitely go check out um, Melissa's article, and then you got the podcast there, and then the live, the Facebook live video that you can check out. All right, so uh, let's go ahead and go on. This next article is not very long, but it's one that, like I said, I never realized uh, th this one before. I mean, I, I do try to do things very organically in my garden, and uh, I, I, you know, stopped using Roundup years and years and years ago, even, even before Prepper website, but... Uh, you know, I do have weeds popping up, and because you know we have a pool in the backyard, and people come over, we want it to look nice. But there's sometimes there's some weeds that are just very very persistent, and so uh, this article here is again uh, even after all the articles that I've read on Prepper website and posted on Prepper website, I've never heard this one before. So this is a new one. So you you're in for a new one here, uh, hopefully. And uh, like I said, I have a an article. Well, let me just go ahead and start reading it, and then I'll add that here at the end. This is coming from the Organic Prepper Daisy Luther's. Um, website and it's called how to make a free diy weed killer from someone's bad habit okay here we go 
As happily organic as we all try to be, sometimes we have to deal with noxious weeds. While strong white vinegar will get rid of many of these weeds, occasionally we have to pull out the big guns. Instead of turning to Monsanto's Roundup, you can use someone's bad habit to make your own DIY weed killer, and it's free. A quick word on vinegar weed killers. A lot of people try them and say that they don't work. For vinegar to be effective as a weed killer, it has to be highly concentrated, 10% or more. This is a 30% vinegar that can be used when serious vinegar is needed, but it ends up being a lot more pricey than the DIY I'm about to show you. Okay, so she's linking to uh, a vinegar there. Again, that uh, that vinegar recipe is a, a what I use in my sprayer is a gallon of white vinegar, half a cup of salt, uh, and uh, about a tablespoon of Dawn I, Dawn soap, liquid soap. I don't measure it out; I just pour it in there. All right, so let's continue reading on this one. A noxious weed is one that has been designated by an agricultural authority as harmful to crops, ecosystems, humans, or livestock. These plants tend to grow aggressively and multiply quickly, often invading an area and spreading through it rapidly, leaving ecological destruction in their wakes. As well, some noxious weeds are either harmful or poisonous to people and animals. Here's how to make a frugal DIY weed killer. Cigarette smoking is a nasty habit, but many people still do it. If you happen to have visiting smokers, they can help keep your pathway and patios pristine and weed-free. If, like me, you banish smokers to your backyard but still get left with the problem of disposing of all those butts tossed into a sand-filled pot or an ashtray, you can make a slightly slight change and put those nasty butts to a good use. Swap out the ashtray for a lidded bucket with a few inches of water in the bottom and get them to throw their butts into the bucket. Make sure you keep this out of the reach of children and animals because the liquid contents are deadly if ingested. The water will turn a nasty looking orange brown color very quickly. This is the nicotine leaching out of the butts. The longer they are in there, the more nicotine will leach out into the water. As time goes on, add more water to your bucket until it is about half full. You're basically making the nastiest tea imaginable. After a week or so of steeping, you're ready to go. You can leave it steeping as long as you like if smoking visitors are rare. Here's how to make the weed killer. Make sure you wear rubber gloves. Cover the top of the bucket with something to catch the butts. A pair of pantyhose works well stretched and secured over the top of the bucket. Drain the liquid into another bucket and discard the fabric containing the butts directly into the trash. Take your bucket of liquid in a smaller container. Dana, the reader sharing this tip, uses a turkey baster specifically to this purpose. Chop the heads off of the weed and individually target those that dare to invade your drive or patio. Nicotine weed killer is very potent. It will lay waste to even thick weeds and brambles on land that need to be cleared before it can be improved and put to good use. For thick stemmed weeds and brambles, cut the stems as near to the ground as you can without getting ripped to pieces and put the solution directly into the stem. That's it. Easy and it won't cost you a penny. Now some caveats. Please use this responsibly and protect pets, children, other plants, and wildlife. Nicotine is deadly to plant material. This is why I suggest it for use on patios and drives. You'll want to keep it well away from your lawn and vegetable garden. Use it on a dry sunny day. 
You don't want a rainfall washing it into the soil. Nicotine is deadly to bees and birds. This is why I suggest targeting individual weeds rather than broadcast spraying. Always, always cut the tops of the weeds. Cut them down as low to the ground as possible before treating so that the birds and bees are less likely to be attracted to the plant. The plant matter you cut down can be burned unless it is poison ivy or oak. Never burn poison ivy or po po poison oak. Nicotine is deadly to animals and children. Keep them away from the area where you've used it. You can go a step further and cover the weeds that you've poisoned. This is what I do. When I was in California, we got these occasional horrible Scottish thistles that can grow to over 8 feet and are covered in little spines that are excruciating, excruci excruciatingly painful when touched. Cutting them down and digging them up was not enough to get rid of them. They'd come right back and bring their friends. After chopping them down, adding the weed killer right into the center of the stem, I tied a plastic grocery bag tightly around the plant to keep livestock, pets, birds, and bees away. Alright, so great article there and again, something that I've never used. If you've ever used this one before and you have any other um, comments on using this, uh, this solution, please come to episode 52 and drop some information in the comment section of uh, maybe what worked, what didn't work, uh, things you learned, uh, and things to be careful with. Uh, but uh, never, never heard of this one before. So, but you definitely, I totally understand where you have to be careful with other animals getting getting to this. So, um, I'm going to be adding this to my article called "Gardening Gardening Link Bomb." I've talked about it before, but I have a list of of uh, articles on there in a bunch of different categories that pertain to gardening, and one of them is organic weed killer. So, I'm going to go ahead and add this one to it and uh, uh, update that. I'll link to that one in the show notes as well. All right. Thank you, Daisy, on that one. Something new. All right, so we're going to our last article from Survival Sherpa. Todd, um, a good friend, my good teaching friend, bushcrafting friend up there. Uh, it's Survival Sherpa. The article is called The Urgency of Doing Knowing is Not Enough. So uh, this is, you know, some good information here, and uh, hopefully you have a little bit of time to reflect and think about this as uh, as I'm reading this, or even afterwards, and see maybe where you're at. Uh, bewildered, you approach two doors. One reads self-reliance; the other reads books about self-reliance. Which will you open? Five hundred years after the life of Leonardo da Vinci, his words resonate in my soul. Quote. I have been impressed with the urgency of doing. Knowing is not enough. We must apply. In one of his thousands of notebook entries, Da Vinci wrote, I know I am not a man of letters. Experience is my one true mistress, and I will cite her in all cases. Only through experimentation can we truly know anything. In 1452, born a bastard son, Leonardo's future was bleak. No formal education was offered to illegitimate children in his day. Apprenticeships to professional guilds was out of the question. He had no choice but to bootstrap his way out of a situation which he had no control over. In spite of all the obstacles, da Vinci reached genius status as a painter, engineer, botanist, scientist, anatomist, sculptor, and inventor. How did he become the ultimate Renaissance man? He traded theory for action. Quote, for the things we have to learn before we can do them, we learn by doing them. That was Aristotle. 
There are two classes of knowledge, experiential and theoretical. Near the end of my undergraduate studies, I was introduced to experiential learning theory. It works another, it, it's worth another look when comparing book learning to hands-on self-reliance. I'm not anti-book. I have books stacked, shelved, and archived all over the house. However, it is one thing to read about self-reliance and another to apply what you've read for self-reliant living. Skills only become yours by doing. Conventional training, here's a book, go read it, or lectures, is based on knowledge transfer which arrogantly assumes what the individual needs to learn and how the student learns best. The focus is on the needs of the educational system, passing high stakes, tests, school rankings, etc., and not the individual's interest or learning styles. This is the sage-on-the-stage model where information is taught externally but rarely applied internally. I saw a funny but applicable cartoon the other day about wilderness survival which went something like this. A guy wearing his bug-out bag is approached by a woman. Girl, what's inside? Guy, survival books. Girl, what if you have to survive longer than 72 hours? Guy, right, I need a bigger bag of books. Again, books aren't bad. Correction, some are actually bad. Book knowledge is entertaining, but not very useful until it's applied through hands-on experimentation in context to the real world. Conventional training is about memorizing facts. Experiential learning consists of applied knowledge acquired from doing. The urgency of doing is real. So uh, Todd's created a little uh, graphic here designed for doing, and he has conventional training and experiential training. Uh, under conventional training, he has some bullet points. Theoretical, rigid content and design, knowledge and skills taught, for external needs, school system exams, instu in institutions is central, passive process which happens to the learner. And then under ex experiential learning, he has, a co he has bullets as well. They are actually doing the stuff, flexible possibilities, knowledge and skills caught via experience, an inside job for internal growth and development, learner is central, active process which engages the learner. Experiential learning. The cornerstone of learning for me is my experience. Your experience will be different from mine. Where we go astray is trying to mimic what another successful person has achieved. By doing what they do, dressing like them, copying them, keys to quote-unquote, keys to success, to the point of hero worship, we lose our unique self and temperament. Being a fan of someone is one thing. Becoming their mini-me will only limit what you can have become. You and I must live our own story. Other people's ideas, even my own, will never be as authoritative as my experience. And so uh, there's another little graphic he's created here, Experiential Learning Cycle. And uh, there's four points on it. Concrete experience, doing the stuff. Reflective observance, reflecting on the experience, abstract conceptualization, learning from the experience, and active experimentation, trying out what you have learned. And this was adapted from David Knob's Experiential Learning Theory. Experiential self-reliance. Quote, one of my goals is to keep people to think, I'm sorry, let me repeat that one. Quote, one of my goals is to get people to think about what they think they think. That's Scott Jones from Postcards to the Past. Here's a few thoughts I thought I thought along my journey. A. Planning. Quit it. 
This may come as a shock to OCD minds, but by the time you've got every detail planned out on how to do stuff, which I'm guilty of, you've just wasted a lot of valuable time. You really don't need a 31-step plan like the experts say. Procrastination often cross-dresses in plain clothes. It's tricky like that. Just start and make adjustments as you move forward, taking action as a way of bringing a plan together. The perfect plan does not exist. Stop wasting time on the sofa. We tell ourselves, I'm going to start learning a new skill. I'm just going to start tomorrow. So if I can just add, planning planning is not bad, but I agree. He's talking about getting out there and doing, you know, learning skills and, and, and you know, uh, skill uh you know, being able to put them into in, into practice, but uh, I don't I don't think Todd is saying that you should not plan things like you know, hey, where am I going if you know if I need to bug out? What am I doing? What am I taking? All those kinds of things. There is planning to it. He's talking really more about skill acquisition here. So just get out there and do it. There's a lot to learn when you when you do it and you experience it on your own. B is failing. Do it fast. You can plan for all the mistakes. Since I know I'm going to fail, I want to fail fast. The quicker I flop, the faster I can make adjustments and shorten my learning curve. C. Beginning. At the onset of my recent cordwood challenge, I had legitimate fear. Failure and bodily injury were on the top of the list. Looking at that measly pile of wood I chopped the first day, self-doubt doubled down. Here's the thing about beginning. It has a power to overcome fear and doubt. When we start, providence moves us a step closer to what we were created to do. This may seem overly dramatic, spiritual, or too philosophical coming from a woodchopper. Maybe so, but many doors were open for me personally and professionally since that first act swing. The benefit of bold beginnings are often invisible. Most people give up before reaping their rewards. That's a good paragraph, a whole good section right there. Good job on that one, Todd. D is doing the work. Self-reliance is a byproduct of the work. Reading about it is not the work. It's physical, dirty, sweaty, smelly, and satisfying. It comes dressed in overalls with a hoe in its hand. I've had the privilege of learning skills from very talented people. How did they reach such, such high skill level? To put it simply, they isolated themselves with their work. True artisans spend thousands of hours alone, hammering, chopping, baking, writing, carving, experimenting, failing, reflecting, and acting again on an idea. Whatever work you were born to do, start doing it. A side note to our regular readers, I haven't published an article for over a month. I don't offer apologies. This has been a much needed break, which has given me time to think about what I think I think. Keep doing the stuff of self-reliance, Todd. All right, another good article from Todd over at Survival Sherpa. Um, You know, I I love the fact that he brings in the education side of that. You know, when it comes to learning, we have a bunch of learning modalities. There's a lot of them. I can't remember who came up with it. I think Gardner came up with uh, a ton of them. But really, we break it down into three three big ones. And uh, we use uh, the word VAC or the acronym VAC. So it stands for Visual, Auditory, or Kinesthetic. So usually your learning will fall into one of those three areas. You learn the best by visually seeing it, by uh, hearing it auditorily or kinetically, by actually moving things and manipulating things and, and figuring things out. 
I I like to learn auditorily. I I listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to that, uh, you know, to books on tape or not books on tape anymore, but you know, books downloaded from Amazon. Uh, you know, so. I, I like to learn that way, but visual is very powerful, and I think most people are visual today because of uh, you know just we're a very visual society, and so you have like YouTube, you learn tons of things from YouTube. Uh, we're very kinesthetic as well. We like to manipulate things. We learn that way by touching it, by by being able to do it. Uh, in, in the old days, maybe people were more auditory where you think about like traditions were passed down and there wasn't a lot of writing, but it was more auditory and people learned best that way. Uh, they say that in, in the old days, and I'm even kind of linking back to like biblical, biblical times and stuff, is that the traditions were passed down. People were able to share stories and they just had a, this bigger capacity to learn and to memorize uh, when they were, you know, hearing things auditorily as opposed to visually and, and kinesthetically. So something to remember. I mean, the kinesthetic part of getting out there and actually doing it is so very, very powerful too. Uh, you, you need to get out there and do it. And so uh, I love this article about that. And hopefully you are doing that. The worst thing is to, um, you know, be a prepper and you're you're just like buying stuff off Amazon and then you know stocking it in your house and never using it. That's the worst thing to do, right? You want to get out there and and do it and practice it and, and practice with it and mess with it and see if it works or not. So good articles today. I'm going to link to them on uh, episodes 52 at the Prepper Website Podcast.com. Um, come check it out. And again, you want to go check out these these articles because they always have links and videos and things that you can go uh, link to that I can't really um, show you, I guess, you know, over an audio podcast, right? Uh, so you want to go check those out. So good stuff. Good stuff out there. All right. So that's it for episode 52. Thanks so much for listening. We will be back tomorrow. Hey, on Wednesday, Wednesdays are our days to have an interview. So I am going to have an interview with Daisy Luther of Organic Prepper in. So I'm looking forward to that one. Uh, you know, she's always, she always has good stuff, right? And so uh, that will be tomorrow. So looking forward to that one. Uh, if you're looking for more preparedness information, this is not enough for you. We've got tons of stuff at PrepperWebsite.com. Come check us out. All right. Until tomorrow, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until next time, stay prepped and aware. Peace.